0: We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America over the course of four months, They would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the thirteen United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. By mid-February. 1788, six states have ratified the Constitution. Three more are needed to establish the new government, but reality is that it must be unanimous or else it will dissolve in chaos and in civil war. In New York, the newspapers have taken up the discussion and the debate. They will publish letters both against and for the ratification of the Constitution. The letters in favor of ratification will become known as the Federalist Papers. On February 19th, 1788, the greatest and most poignant of these letters is published. It is read and shared using the social media of the day. Men and women meet in pubs, inns, homes, and houses of worship to hear the arguments and to discuss them with their friends. In that action, a nation will be founded. Now that Massachusetts has ratified, along with their proposed alterations and, and amendments, six states. Have ratified the Constitution of the United States, meaning three states remain to enforce the document as a new government. Now, of course, functionally, everybody knows it has to be united. Everybody knows it has to be unanimous. Otherwise, it really kind of blows the whole United States of America thing out of the water. But functionally, nine states, it takes place. But we get kind of a zone here where some of the states are meeting but the biggest states particularly New York haven't even started debating this officially yet the debate in New York is intense but it's also not in a convention it has moved into the newspapers of the day New York Uh, started the ball rolling early on uh, by quickly publishing most of the anti-federalist position papers. The DeWitt letters that we've talked about, uh, letters from a federal farmer which we haven't uh, gotten into quite as much, Cato which we haven't done, a little bit of Brutus that we've done. um, They publish all of those and it appears early on that New York is just going to lay waste to the Constitution. They want nothing to do with this. In fact, when they pick their delegates in just a couple of weeks uh, to start meeting in June, it will be clear, unlike some of the other states, like Delaware, where they had 30 Federalists and zero Anti-Federalists, and some of the Pennsylvania uh, shenanigans with with the delegates and the even split in Massachusetts and that sort of thing, uh, the number of delegates who are pro-Constitution in New York will be less than 20, at the start. The Anti-Federalist delegation uh, will be twice that size. And it will be clear that unless something borderline miraculous happens, New York is going to reject the Constitution. And so the debate in New York really becomes intense. And we've, we, we've talked on numerous, time, numerous occasions about uh, the Federalist Papers, but eventually, letters start appearing in the New York Papers signed exclusively by one name, Pubulus. And, and we've talked about Pubulus. We've done an episode on you know, who was Pubulus and uh, why did that matter and all of that. And, and you can go back and listen to that. It's linked up on the page there. But, uh, but these letters are pro-Constitution. They are not commentary as we've, uh, even I'm guilty of this, we, we, we sometimes tend to think of the Federalist Papers as commentary, uh, like, uh, like a, if you're a Christian, a Matthew Henry commentary, or if you're like me, Jewish, a Talmud-type uh, commentary on what's happening, like they're, like they're a debate about uh, what it means and the likes of that. They're, they're really not. What they actually are is a response to these anti-Federalist arguments. They are an argument in favor of the Constitution of the United States and they are, in many ways, the best argument that we have. They're certainly the, pretty much the only argument we have uh, from the 1780s. There's a few other things about it, but, but as a general rule, this tells us what some of the men who actually wrote the Constitution believed the Constitution would do, and how it would be put into effect, and how it would constitute the country and the government that would come to place and, and most of all what the benefits of that would be because that's really what this comes down to is uh, are we better off <laughs> sounds like a presidential campaign doesn't it are you better off under the articles of confederation or would you, do you like that do you need to make a change it, it almost could have been the slogan for this campaign which is the most divisive and hard-fought political campaign in the history of our country it really is and yet, here it is. Today, people don't really read the Federalist Papers. There, there's some of us that do, obviously. There's uh, wonks and, I hate the phrase, but constitutional scholars that read the Federalist Papers because obviously these are insights and they are arguments in pro uh, favor of the Constitution. The Anti-Federalist Papers are even less read, I believe, although one wonders why. There are some, certainly some cogent arguments there. But usually, when you ask why, you get told, "Well, they're boring. They're hard to understand. Uh, they're they're difficult to read," which all of which is is primarily can be true. Uh, it, it makes me question our education system to some degree uh, because they're really not, if you think about it, written in they're written in English, um, and it was the English that pretty much everybody spoke that of 1788. And yet, all of a sudden, now we can't understand it. Well, you never get that argument about the King James Version Bible, do you? Anyway, point being that uh, this has caused many people to try along the way. Uh, A few years ago, a guy we had on the show, uh, Josh Charles, uh, did a book. He wrote a book, um, which he then convinced Glenn Beck to put his name on called The Original Argument, where he essentially rewrote the Federalist Papers in, quote, modern language so that they would be easily understandable. Um, I thought Josh did a pretty good job. Uh, The only problem is that anytime you translate something, your biases enter into that, and Josh's biases do enter into that. Uh, That doesn't mean he's right or wrong. What it means is you have to know your source um, and and what you're looking at, and and rather than changing somebody's thoughts to what you think they said, that may not always necessarily be the case, especially when you're talking about the Federalist Papers. I might read something and say, well, this is what they mean. You might read the same sentence and come up with completely different. That's what happens with the Constitution on an almost daily basis. Well, what did they mean? And thus we have a Supreme Court to, to decide those things, but uh, you don't really have a Supreme Court when it comes to the Federalist Papers. But when you think about this, and, and this is what most amazes me about this debate in New York particular, The way this debate was conducted was open, it was intense, and it was shared, he said foreshadowingly, by virtually everyone in the state. In effect, the newspapers of New York, the state of New York, were the social media of the day. This is how people communicated in 1788. If you were illiterate, and there were illiterate people, you would go to the town square or the pub, the inn, whatever, the house, and someone there would read what was in the paper and people would sit around and discuss that if you didn't read it for yourself. And if you read it for yourself, you would, you would discuss it with other people over a pint or uh, uh, a dinner or whatever, and, and there was a great deal of discussion and a great deal of talking and a great deal of sharing about what was going on, and it was not secretive, uh, except in Pennsylvania, <laughs> in one part of Pennsylvania. Um, and there was a great, there was a great discussion about it. Now, it was very much, very much like our social media of the day, with people sharing and people um, discussing. But there were a couple of major differences. Number one, I think the biggest difference was. Uh, minds were changed because the arguments, while vehement, were not personal. They, they very rarely became, you know, well, Cato is obviously a communist or, or publius is a, is a you know, elitist or whatever. It very rarely became like that. They argued the points, not the people. They, uh, There's no British saying about playing the man and not the ball. Our politics today... That's what we do. We play the man. We, we we don't the 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 substance of the issue has very little to do with the debate. We debate the man or the woman, as the case may be. We don't debate the issues. In 1788, it was the opposite. They sat around and they debated the issues, and minds can be changed when you debate in that form. Secondly, they actually read this stuff. Uh, one of the things that drives me nuts about uh, Facebook and social media today are these little bit links and the the, the postings and the. This and that, the headline, the headline rationale, which is, I read a headline and suddenly I'm an expert on whatever particular subject is is at hand. There, can you imagine if the if the constitutional debate had been handled like that? No, they they read these papers through and through, and they talked about them, and they discussed them, and they argued them, and the debates became back and forth and back and forth. And it was this week in 1788, February 19th to be exact, that what I consider to be the greatest of the Federalist Papers was published by the New York Papers. The Anti-Federalists had made a rather substantial charge that the proposed Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, had a great... uh, similarity I guess would be the best way to put it to what they were familiar with from England the House of Commons. Now the House of Commons if you're not familiar with it is uh, obviously the parliamentary body that runs England under the Constitution constitutional monarchy that they have but unlike today although I'm sure that there is some shenanigans going on there today in the 1780s under King George III the way that the parliamentarians, the, the, the House of, of Commons members were selected was slightly different, I guess, in, in some ways. And, and it was very easy to corrupt the process. In fact, part of the reason that there was an American Revolutionary War was the fact that Parliament initially was at least open to the idea of the Americans going their separate ways. But King George managed to buy enough seats in parliament and stack it with people who would oppose that and this became an actual issue in the early debates from the Stamp Act on uh, until into the 1770 1775 1776 when the war actually broke out these rotten boroughs as they were were bought and paid for by the king and he put his people in there and this this was unfortunate because these these were men that were put in there because they were loyal to the king or because they were corrupt or because they had more money or they had a name they had uh, status they had fame they weren't representative of the average citizen of that borough and that of course caused a great deal of resentment when you combine that with the fact that you know the colonies weren't allowed to send anyone to parliament at all it really it really didn't set well with us as americans the anti-federalists looked at what had been proposed this idea that every two years we would elect uh, the entire house of representatives with some apprehension and they pointed out the fact that the same thing's going to happen the rich the powerful the famous the uh, the corrupt are going to manage to buy or fraud or whatever their way into these seats and you have no mechanism for preventing that so how is this going to be any different from the House of Commons from Parliament which by the way you know with enough money could be made to do anything how is this going to be in any way shape or form different and Madison who is credited with writing Federalist 57, takes up this argument and he, he, he begins by saying that this is the most, of all the complaints about the Constitution, of all the things that have been said about the Constitution, the proposed document, of, of all the complaints that they've had, this one is the one that just, just really strikes at his heart. This is the one of all the objections he writes which have been framed against the federal Constitution. This is perhaps the most extraordinary Because the objection is leveled against a pretended oligarchy the principle strikes at the very root of Republican government He takes an idealistic approach which says that This is a Republican government not a monarchy not a constitutional monarchy And so the people will understand that and they will not settle for what you're talking about. He goes on in what I consider again to be the greatest of the Federalist Papers to outline five specific reasons why Congress, why the House of Representatives, will not be like Parliament, and why, it will preser- why the House of Representatives will preserve the liberties of the people of the United States. And of all the Federalist Papers, this is the one that speaks loudest to me and again, published this week in 1788, February 19, 1788, this one came out. This is the moment when you realize what those first three words of the Constitution really mean. This is the point where you, you come to that conclusion, where you, where you really get that feeling that this really is about we the people. And Madison is very clear, although also very Pollyannish. It would be hard to sit here today in 2016 and deny that the Anti-Federalists were wrong about how Congress would become an oligarchy. You, 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 yeah, I'm certainly not going to make that argument when Congress people can be elected 20-30 times with, you know, being accused of malfeasance and uh, failure to do anything worthwhile, to, to criminal activity, to questionable behavior, uh, and, and be over and over again you know, elected, it would be hard uh, to not to not say that. Of course, and, and with the advantages that incumbents have with money and, and, and abilities and powers and that sort of things, it really makes it hard for a new person to get in there, which of course Madison did not foresee happening. He saw that going much differently, but there was a reason why he saw it going much differently and that reason is where we're at uh, today. Madison begins his defense of Congress by arguing that the people, and that's very important, the people will only choose distinguished men to uphold their engagements. so the representatives then have an obligation to stand by their words. In other words, we're going to hold a congressperson accountable for what they say they're going to do, and so, since they know they're going to be held accountable, it behooves them uh, to, uh, to uphold their word it's a legitimate argument and it's probably the argument that I've made more times than I can count about holding politicians accountable across the board but certainly congress people but do we really do it you could make the argument that across the nation we do not uh, it's it's sad but this was Madison's first and primary argument the people will only put men of esteem distinguish who will uphold their work And if they don't, (laughs) they'll kick them out. The representatives will sense that they are being honored. And because they're being honored, they'll feel gratitude. At the least, at least the tiniest affection, they'll feel gratitude towards the constituents. This is one of the arguments that Madison makes. I don't know how many congressmen you've ever met in your life, but I've never had a (laughs) congressman uh, demonstrate to me publicly uh, the tiniest bit of gratitude whatsoever to his constituency other than on election night when they come out and say thank the voters for putting me you know back and uh, that's not really great uh, sir humphrey appleby the fictional character of yes prime minister once defined gratitude as the lively expectation of favors yet to come so when gratitude is displayed it's really just a a fishing for for more of what i want But Madison believed that these men would feel honor and that they would feel distinguished and they would feel the need to uphold that honor. How many times have I said about, you know, state politicians and state whatever, when they get into trouble and they don't resign? This is what Madison is talking about. Because whether they broke the law or not, if they let the people down, that affection that they feel for the need to serve the people should drive them to say, I failed you. But again, it does not. This is a case where the anti Federalists were probably right. Number three, he wrote the selfish motives of the human nature bind the representative to, to his constituents because the delegates hope to seek advancement from his fathers rather than from the government. In other words, he's, each one of these people is hoping that the people will say, hey, that guy was a great, absolutely great. Congressman, Let's make him our state senator. Let's push to make him our state senator. And he, and he was a great senator. Let's push to make him president or vice president. The belief that Madison had was that the people and the pleasure that the people gained from their representative would, in fact, become the motivating factor for advancement. Fourthly, he reminded the Anti-Federalists, and this is where he starts to get back on track, I think, Uh, Frequent elections remind the representatives that they are dependent on the constituents for their loyalty and support. Therefore, they should remain loyal to their constituents, not somebody else. Okay, well, it's a great idea, and it certainly speaks loudly. But again, would you argue that the Anti-Federalists were correct in the sense that the corruption would become that they would become beholden to their political masters, or their constituents. Which way would you argue that has happened? And when you get to this point, it's easy to dismiss Madison's writing here in Federalist 57 and say, well he got it completely wrong because the nature of man, as Madison himself once wrote, if men were angels we wouldn't need these roles, but he got it completely wrong. But he didn't get it completely wrong because he reminds us, he reminded us at the start, the people choose these distinguished men. The people do, we the people do this. And then he comes to his fifth reason why Congress will never become corrupted like Parliament had. He writes that the laws created by the legislatures, legislators, sorry, will apply to all members of the society, including the legislators themselves. In fact, what he wrote was that they could write no law which will not have full operation on themselves and their friends as well as on the great mass of society. This has always been deemed one of the strongest bonds by which human policy can connect the rulers and the people together. It creates between them the communion of interests and the sympathy of sentiments, of which few governments have managed to furnish examples, but without which every government degenerates into tyranny. If it be asked, he writes... What is to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discrimination in favor of themselves in a particular class of society? I answer, the genius of the whole system, the nature of just and constitutional laws, and above all, above all, the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which nourishes freedom, and in return is nourished by it, Madison makes it clear that this whole process, you want, you want to prevent Congress from becoming corrupt, you want to present, prevent anything from becoming misused and abused and, 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 and all of those sorts of things, the people and their spirit is what's going to do that. If the people's spirit maintains it, then it can't become those things. And you'd have to argue that he's absolutely right. And then he writes these words, and again for me this is the very heart of the entire argument of the Federalists as they argue for the Constitution. If this spirit that he was just talking about, if this spirit shall ever be so far debased as to tolerate a law not obligatory on the legislature as well as on the people, the people will be prepared to tolerate anything but liberty you don't have to look far in today's nation you don't have to look far to find laws that congress has exempted itself from that benefit their friends that benefit certain segments of society uh, you could sit down with a sit down with any uh, libertarian and have the discussion about you know a free market system and you'll see uh, just how far the Congress has gone to favor certain businesses over others and so forth and so on but Madison's point was and should be reminded to us once again is that this isn't Congress's fault I mean it kind of is but it really isn't it's our fault we the people were supposed to prevent this from happening and this is his belief as he writes this is that we the people We'll never tolerate this. So, why do we? Today, our social media has become bits and pieces and headlines and quick opinions and absolutes, blacks and whites without any gray in the middle. You're right, that must mean I'm wrong. I'm right, that must mean you're wrong. There's no sitting around and Discussing the issue anymore, like it was done on social media in 1788, when they sat around with a beer and they did, uh, they read it and they said, "Okay, what's what's the advantages? What's the disadvantages?" That doesn't happen today. Just look at your Facebook feed. You'll you'll see or your Twitter feed. You'll see what I'm talking about. When I first came up with the idea of Constitution Thursday, that's one of the things I wanted to do, we didn't call it that then, is I wanted to go to a restaurant, a bar, a place where we could sit around a big table with drinks and food and we could, we could discuss the ideas and we could talk about what was supposed to happen, is it happening that way, should we change it, Do we do, what can we do? for reasons that go beyond this discussion that it didn't quite work out that way as you know and it eventually morphed into this constitution thursday which is a discussion of those ideas and 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 through these six years now of constitution thursday we've had times when people have gotten mad at me because they disagreed with what i said which is fine i've never let that personally bother me what i've said is okay let's talk about the issue because that's what we have to do we have to debate the issues we have to use the social media of 1788 in which we read the materials we think about them we discuss them rather than simply reading the headline and going well that's right or that's wrong or you're stupid or I'm smart or whatever we whatever approach we tend to take these days our immediate flaming on on social media needs to be replaced with with careful and concerned thought processes. But we're not willing to do that are we? It's no coincidence folks that the death of the newspaper, the death of, of, of people discussing these things, the death of print media and even television media and radio media to a degree, contributes to this. We're given news and issues in palatable forms as I as I once told you about sitting with a newspaper reporter who told me that he could write any story so that the reader will quote come to the right conclusion whatever that meant it's up to us though it's up to we the people to make the determination that we're going to take that social media we're going to take that issue we're going to take that discussion and we're going to make it an actual analyzing of the discussion we're not going to play the man and we're going to play the ball is this a valid issue regardless of who came up with it Is it a good idea or not? And that's what people in 1788 New York did. And when they start their convention in a few weeks, as I told you earlier, it's gonna be overwhelmingly anti-federalist. It looks bleak for the Constitution. And yet, they're going to discuss the ideas, not the people behind them. They're going to discuss whether this is good, whether this is bad, whether this is right, whether this is wrong. Is, Is there a better way? Are we better off? than we were under the Articles of Confederation. And you won't be surprised, of course, to know that New York will ratify the Constitution. Consider that and think about that when you read your social media today. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to ConstitutionThursday.com.